Hello, welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. Firstly, a summary so far. Season 2, episode 87, which began this mini-series, focused on the rise in greenhouse gas emissions and the impact on global warming. After the 1960s, there have been many predictions of doom. In a few short decades, there has been a sea change of knowledge. The world's climate scientists agree that climate change is anthropogenic and highly dangerous. However, there has been a huge failure to act sufficiently upon this knowledge. We are blasting through the 1.5 degree threshold and beyond. Carbon dioxide emissions, now at record levels, are almost 50% higher than their average throughout the history of our species. Melting ice caps, disappearance of Arctic summer ice, rises in sea levels around the world, wildfires and hurricanes, exposure of billions more people to extreme weather, increased flooding, loss of ecosystems and reduced agricultural production are just some of the consequences. Business civilization is humankind's most potent economic achievement, but it is nature's most dangerous antagonist. The next episode, Season 2, Episode 88, argued, Life on this planet has always been deeply interlinked with climate. The Earth passes through great cycles of glacial and warming conditions, with enormous consequences for the promotion, restriction or even extinction of life. Suggested explanations of these cycles were given. Climate change then has permitted the flourishing of life, but periodically it puts life on an existential precipice. Hominins, our ancestors, adapted to changing habitats and climatic environments. However, all but one of the Homo lineage have gone extinct. Such extinctions often coincide with severe climate change. Nature is often portrayed as the good or the terrifying mother. Nowhere is this more evident than in the relationship between climate and life itself. Climate change, often very severe, quite simply has been one of the biggest influences upon life on Earth and upon human history. The last episode, Season 2, Episode 89, identifies the other elements of the ecological crisis aside from climate. These include biodiversity loss, otherwise known as the sixth extinction event, chemical pollution into land, air, rivers and oceans, particle pollution of the atmosphere, deforestation and land use, freshwater scarcity, the phosphorus and nitrogen cycle. This episode continued by identifying business civilization as the immediate source of the contemporary ecological crisis. Next, it introduced the Das Gupta Review with its investigation of the contemporary trauma of global biodiversity loss. Finally, it explored Shelley's Ode to the West Wind. This current episode argues that the greenhouse gas emission targets will not be reached. Aside from climate, the other components of the ecological crisis are completely unaddressed. We need to prepare for survival in a degraded world. There is a far wider spectrum of crises aside from climate and ecology. The root of the crisis is the human psyche. We need renewed spiritual vision. 
So let us begin the final episode in this mini-series. This current episode argues that the greenhouse gas emissions targets are not being reached on time and we need to prepare for survival in a degraded world. The vast majority of countries have CO2 reduction targets that are inadequate with respect to timing and collectively have no chance of holding global average temperature rises to 1.5 degrees centigrade above the pre-industrial levels, which is the Paris Agreement. We are frequently told that we are already at 1.2 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. But these reports are surely out of date. So far this year, from January to September 2023, the global average temperatures are already 1.4 degrees centigrade above the pre-industrial level, which is from 1850 to 1900. This year might be an outlier, but I doubt it. The evidence is that year after year we are setting record temperatures. I suspect that by 2050 we shall be between 2.5 to 5 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels, which will be catastrophic. These are my fears, but I am not alone with them. Part of the problem with conservative projections of the IPCC, for example, is that it is very difficult to take account of tipping points, as well as synergistic and knock-on effects from other crises. For example, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a military crisis and was not predicted in the West. But its impact on the climate agenda was very severe. How come? Well, there was an immediate energy crisis. Russian gas supplies to Europe were greatly reduced. And countries scrambled to find energy supplies, natural gas in particular, from whatever sources. Thus, fossil fuels were demanded at all costs, since the prospect of an energy shortage was terrifying. The climate agenda was thrown out of the window, and the oil and gas industries had no difficulty convincing governments that fossil fuels were more essential than ever. British academic Jim Skier, who has taken over as chair of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, has admitted, quote, the chances of the world limiting the rise in global temperatures to 1.5 degrees centigrade since the pre-industrial times are now less than one-third to one-half predicted in the last landmark report by the United Nations Climate Science Body. So between third and half less likely to happen. The Paris Accord of 2015 set agreed limits to greenhouse gas emissions so as to hopefully maintain the rise of temperature to the 1.5, maximum 2 degrees centigrade. But we are already at 1.4 in 2023. The IPCC and official climate bodies have great research explaining the theory of climate damage. They have outlined all the required policies. They have monitored greenhouse gas emissions and the Earth's temperature precisely. They have explained and predicted accurately the consequences of this, all top-class work. There is only one thing missing, an anticipation of the enormous speed of change. Clearly, vast changes are needed 
immediately. Promises for the second half of the 21st century are hopelessly long-distant. 2050 for the countries of the Paris Accord, 2060 for China, 2070 for India, and so on. The IPCC report of March 2023 makes an urgent appeal, once again, for wholesale change. It says, quote, achieving net zero CO2 and greenhouse gas emissions requires systems transformations across all sectors and contexts, including scaling up renewable energy while phasing out all unabated fossil fuels, ending deforestation, reducing non-CO2 emissions and implementing both supply and demand side measures. Yes, radical and comprehensive action is required immediately. And to be fair, there are some optimistic scenarios by informed commentators which argue that progress has been made. And while the 1.5 degree may be breached, it may well be possible to hold the rise to around 2 or 2.2. So, in their view, the worst scenarios may be avoided. For example, Sam Harris in a recent podcast on September the 5th, 2023, called Sanity Check on Climate Change, interviewed Professor Chris Field, who, among many other accomplishments, was co-chair of the Working Group 2 of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change from 2008 to 2015. In the podcast, he eloquently argued the above view, that things were progressing and there was a good chance of holding it at around 2 to 2.2 degrees above pre-industrial level. Ada Turner in an article for the Financial Times on the 20th of July 2023, said, quote, We need to cut fossil fuel use fast, reducing CO2 emissions to around zero by the middle of the century, the Paris Accord. To do that, we must electrify as much as possible, decarbonise electricity supply, and use hydrogen, bioenergy and carbon capture in applications where direct electricity use is not feasible. Ingenious as ever, Adair Turner points with ample practical examples to how this can be achieved. Simon Koufer, in an article again for the FT on same date, 20th of July 2023, wrote, Most importantly, renewable energy is advancing unexpectedly fast. The International Energy Agency predicted last December that global renewable power capacity would grow by 2,400 gigawatts from 2022 to 2027, an amount equal to the entire power capacity of China today. This massive expected increase was 30% above the agency's previous year's forecast. The IEA, International Energy Agency, now expects renewables to account for almost the entire global expansion in electricity. Since that forecast, China has said its solar capacity increased 34% in just the first quarter of 2023. True, today's level of renewable use isn't nearly enough to save us, but if this pace of growth continues, it could become so. He continues, The renewables revolution is sustainable precisely because it stems from cold, hard, short-term self-interest. It's happening because improved technology slash prices. That trend will encourage countries to build more capacity. Most new renewables projects 
should prove much cheaper over time than existing fossil fuel sources. And when it comes to climate, cheap green tech is our only hope. We've learnt these past 30 years that states won't make collective international sacrifices in order to protect future generations. Nor will countless individual moral awakenings do the job. For every person who stops flying, multiple emerging consumers are booking their first flights. It's clean tech or catastrophe. Unquote. Martin Wolf, renowned macroeconomist writing for the Financial Times, in 2020 argued the following, quote, So we must massively accelerate technological progress away from burning fossil fuels. We must move beyond them almost completely. To achieve this by 2050, the rate of reduction of emissions per unit of output needs to jump massively. Is this achievable? From a technological point of view, it appears so. He continues, so at least argues the Energy Transitions Commission in a number of important reports. The essential ideas are simple. The core of the new energy system is electricity generated by renewable means, solar and wind, and nuclear power. This needs to be backed up by a variety of storage systems, batteries, hydroelectricity, hydrogen and natural gas, with carbon capture and storage. Reductions in cost have already been large enough and technological progress rapid enough to make this transition feasible at manageable cost. He admits this would, however, be a revolution. A zero-carbon economy would require about four to five times as much electricity as our present one, all from non-carbon-emitting sources. However, I remain unconvinced and hope I'm completely wrong. I accept that there are significant movements to greener energy. There are substantial gains to be made from electric cars, solar power and wind farms, etc. But these are currently, and for the foreseeable future, an addition to traditional fossil fuels, not a replacement for them. Oil, gas and coal made up 81.8% of the global energy mix in 2022. Almost the same figure as the 82.3% in 2021. That's only a very small reduction from the 2015 figure of 85% share and the 86% share in 1995, when the first United Nations Climate COP conference was held. Despite all the talks, things have barely changed. We are simply not reducing our fossil fuel consumption, nor our pollution sufficiently, nor specifically our emission of greenhouse gases. Temperatures continue to rise, locked in from previous decades of carbon dioxide emissions. The world is drifting towards the mother of all storms. Meanwhile, many countries, far from pushing ahead with the Paris Accord agreements, are simply saying they have to continue with fossil fuels. Russia, in late October 2023, just said, quote, We oppose any provisions or outcomes that somehow discriminate or call for phase-out of any specific energy source or fossil fuel type. Unquote. South Africa has just announced that it must continue with its old coal-consuming electricity-producing stations. Britain has announced new drilling to the almost exhausted wells of the North Sea. China has announced, apparently on the positive side of the ledger, that it will not be financing any more coal-fired stations 
in its loans and grants to the developing world as part of its Belt and Road Initiative. But this appears to me quite cynical. China's gigantic lending programme to the developing world has come off the rails because of the debt crisis of many of these countries and the programme's financing has been vastly reduced anyway. Incidentally, after many coal-fired stations have already been agreed, for example in Pakistan. In addition, China is saying nothing about its own coal-fired stations within China. It continues to be the largest coal producer in the world by a very long margin. In fact, China is the largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world, doubling those of the United States, the second largest emitter, and quadrupling those of India, the third largest emitter. Many oil producers are preparing their coming COP-out. Oh, did I say COP-out? I meant COP28, which is now just starting this year in the United Arab Emirates. By saying they would prefer to engage in carbon capture technology rather than reduce oil production. Very convenient. Anything rather than switch from fossil fuels. And what do we really expect by holding the COP in the United Arab Emirates, one of the biggest oil exporters in the world. Meanwhile, around $41 billion per year has been spent by OECD countries, export credit agencies, to support coal, oil and gas projects between 2018 and 2020, which is nearly five times their support for clean energy. The top subsidisers include Canada, the United Arab Emirates, and Russia. Panic is emerging as it is realised that both the 1.5 and the 2 degrees centigrade will be breached and that measures of adaptation as well as attempted prevention must be taken. In other words we will have to learn how to live in a degraded and much more dangerous natural environment. Exhortation to the world's leaders from the United Nations has very limited impact. With respect to climate change, it is not technology that is the limiting factor. Technologically, the world could move to a far cleaner energy use. The limiting factors are the political environment and the massive economic interests in fossil fuels. Global coalition is not possible at the moment. Global political division is fatal for cooperation in every department, especially business, but including climate matters, which demand international cooperation. Even if CO2 levels were to be modified and held at livable levels, the other aspects of the ecological crisis continue unabated. In addition, we live in a world of multiple interlocking evolving crises, which I have termed the horsemen of the apocalypse. In conclusion, the greenhouse gas emissions are not decreasing and targets are not being reached. The other components of the ecological crisis, from biodiversity loss, deforestation to pollution, are completely unaddressed in our obsession with climate change and CO2, which anyway is failing in its own goals. We need to prepare for survival in a degraded world. Business civilization, East and West, has trashed the planet and continues to do so. Those countries that have least trashed it have simply been those who have been least able, or those that least did so in the past and are now able to do so 
do so with little constraint. The world is in a grip of a central addiction, the use of fossil fuels as an energy source. It is trying to kick the habit, more or less, but it is far from certain that it can. It knows that this is life-threatening, but like all addicts, denies it, ignores it, and rapidly gives in. Only when the pain of addiction considerably exceeds the suffering arising from the addiction is there a chance of giving up, and even then, not always. The exploitative and aggressive components of human nature need to be opposed and battled against since they have always been very dangerous. But now, due to our technologies and globalised business systems, have become a diabolic threat to not only the very existence of our species, but to all life on Earth. The ecological dimension distinguishes our age, the Anthropocene, from any other since we have only had this awareness very recently. Our attack upon nature and its life-giving goodness, a miracle of creation, constitutes an evil we are possessed by and stems from an addiction the human species is locked into. At the end of the day, possibly at the end of our civilization, we have to lay aside the cost-benefit analysis, the calculations, the spreadsheets, the profit and loss accounts, and see ourselves as a whole. This includes the dark shadow, to use a Jungian term, within our psyche, within our nature. It includes our attack upon and now conscious destruction of the natural world. Unless we profoundly modify our appetites and impulses, change our value system at a deep level, These problems of the multiple crises of our age cannot be addressed at root because the root of the problem lies in the human psyche. Moreover, the wider ecological crisis beyond the climatic is only one of the horsemen of the apocalypse, one of the components of the interlocking crises of our age of which I'm identifying at least ten of them. They are all influencing one another and cannot really be understood in isolation. Here is a poem from my book The Sower and the Seed. It's not the best by a long shot, but says in a metaphysical and psychological matter what I feel about these matters. It's called Death Potential. Mankind is full of conflict, forever passion's slave. Swayed by anger or by fear, we never cease to crave. The animal within us, it suffocates our heart. We have to feed it every day. It might tear us apart. Thinking is our special gift, designed to take control. Scientific argument says reason is our goal. In spite of best endeavours, of law, of church and state, The savage that's inside us all so quickly turns to hate. If this is all that humans have, just appetite and reason, we won't be here for very long beyond the nuclear season. The rivalry of nation-states will have had its day. Sunless winters will ensure Earth's life will soon decay. A trauma waits the human race, 
The sands are running fast. Our species will reduce its size. Our world, it will not last. Extinction, though, we may escape, but horror is at hand. Survivors shall a dark age face. Death will stalk the land. What then? Perhaps we start anew. Fresh principles required. Foundations strong must then be built, or time will have expired. There will be myths of some great past, when fire and water reigned, when humans near destroyed themselves, their shadow uncontained. These are the times we live in. Our fate is self-imposed. We're clearly so unconscious, our dangerous shadow grows. Unless we readjust our aims from short-term finite goals, we're damned within our appetites. We're doomed without our souls. This precious earth we cannot save, only with the mind. We limit our intelligence when soul is left behind. We need a greater vision. New leaders are required. It's economic greed and power by which we are inspired. There's little time to change this now. We've plundered all the earth. See our darkness, know our fate. Through death, seek our rebirth. This planet is our paradise. So much has been destroyed. Reveling in aggression still, the balance is finely poised. The sower casts the seed far wide. The cosmos has a soul. This seed is planted in our breast. It's there to make us whole.